You know, in sustainability, we've been like charging towards net zero, which is not a very, you know, inspiring thing. You get to zero, <laughs> meaning zero harm. And well, it's especially hard. on a college campus, nobody it's, wants a zero. Nobody right? wants a zero, right? <laughs> and it's hard to do. I mean, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm yeah. not. You know, we need to do no harm. Once we get to that level, where we're meeting our own needs, I think it's time to go positive. We have to get to that point, and that's true biomimicry when we're functioning like that, when we're that kind of a good neighbor. From Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, this is Sound Effect. Now here's your host, Megan Hayes. Janine Benyus is a biologist, author, innovation consultant, and self-proclaimed nature nerd who popularized the term biomimicry with her 1997 book, Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature. Since the book's 1997 release, she has evolved the practice of biomimicry, speaking around the world about what we can learn from what she refers to as the genius that surrounds us. Janine Benyus is also co-founder of the world's first bio-inspired consultancy, Biomimicry 3.8, with high-profile clients that include Boeing, Colgate-Palmolive, Nike, General Electric, Herman Miller, Procter & Gamble, Levi's, Kohler, and General Mills. In 2006, she co-founded the Biomimicry Institute, a nonprofit dedicated to making biology a natural part of the design process. The Institute hosts annual global biomimicry design challenges on massive sustainability problems, mobilizing tens of thousands of students and practitioners throughout the global mimicry network to solve those challenges and providing those practitioners with the world's most comprehensive biomimicry inspiration database, Ask Nature, to use as a starting place. She is a graduate of Rutgers University with degrees in natural resource management and English literature and writing. Janine Benyus, welcome to Sound Effect. Thank you. It's good to be here. Oh, we're really glad to have you on our campus. Uh, I was wondering if you could start by explaining the concept of biomimicry and how far along this concept has come into becoming mainstream since you first published your book, Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature, because 97 was a while ago. Yeah. Yeah, biomimicry is a, it's an innovation practice where we look to the natural world for designs, processes, strategies that we then try to emulate uh, in order to create a more sustainable world. The core idea is that life has been on Earth for 3.8 billion years and has learned during that time what works and what lasts and uh, how to fit in here. And so some of the, the people who make our world, the chemists, the architects, the engineers, the physicists, a lot of people are turning to the natural world as a, a whole new library of innovations that are already sustainable. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between technology that is inspired by nature and bioassisted technology and maybe share some examples to, to show how they're different? That's a really, really good point because there's a lot of bios out there, right? So I'll start with bioutilization. You know, some people say, hey, I have wood floors, I'm doing biomimicry. Well, no, that's Biotilization. You're you're using something that's been harvested by a, a natural producer, a tree. Um, bioassisted is where you actually have nature help you do something. Cleaning our wastewater with bacteria is a bioassisted process. Or using yeast, which is a living organism, to make beer is a bioassisted process. And we've been doing that for a long, long time. Biomimicry is where you're actually looking to the natural world for a blueprint, right? So I'll give you an example. Um, 
sharks, um, especially this shark called the Galapagos shark, doesn't get bacteria on its surface. Therefore, it doesn't have barnacles and, you know, it has a very smooth surface. And scientists realize that the reason is actually shape. It's not chemistry. Hmm. They're not killing the bacteria. The dentisoles on their skin have particular nano ridges that the bacteria don't like to settle on. So it actually repels bacteria, therefore doesn't breed for resistance because you're not killing bacteria. So you don't have superbugs. So there's a company called Sharklet that has taken that shape. They're putting it on um, doorknobs and hospital railings and steel cases using it in their handles of their armrests of their chairs. And it's actually like a contact paper that just has that shape on it. So it's not that they bred sharks and then right. took the, you know, that would be a bio-utilization, you know, using the shark skin. And it's not that they're having sharks help you, you know, it's you're mimicking something in the natural world. The, the organism stays in the wild. You borrow the idea, the blueprint, the recipe, the strategy. Therefore, it's it's quite different, actually, than bio-assisted or, or bio-utilized. Almost seems in a way, this sort of simple genius, too, where, you know, it, it would be much more difficult to breed the sharks and <laughs> use their skin. But in this case, a contact paper seems like a really simple solution. Yeah. There's a lot of surface things. There's a paint, a facade paint for buildings that mimics the bumpy structure that's on lotus leaves. A lot of leaves that you see that have in the morning you see balls of dew balled up on a leaf. That's actually a self-cleaning mechanism for the leaf mm. in part because if you look really closely at its surface, it's got these little bumps on it that forces the water to ball up and then the dirt particles teeter on those bumps. Then the ball of water kind of pearls them away. So this lotusen paint, basically when it dries, it has that bumpy structure. And so, yes, there was human ingenuity in trying to figure out how to have the paint dry so that it would have that kind of bumpy structure and particular geometry. But then rainwater can clean the building. Wow. And so, yeah, so you, it's, back to your question, it's a good question to ask. I'd like to ask you about your career path. So how did you get to the point where you became the biologist at the design table for companies and governments and universities? Hmm. Yeah, um, total accidental tourist. Um, I am a natural history writer by profession, and it, Biomimicry was my sixth book. I had written five books about plant and animal adaptations. I was fascinated with natural technologies, what allows organisms to live at the top of a mountain or the bottom of the ocean, the, the cool technologies they have. And I began to realize that they're also very sustainable. None of the chemistry is done with heat, beat, and treat, which mm -hmm. is how we do our, how we make our, our things. You know, we heat them up, we high pressures, uh, toxic chemicals, and none of it is like that because it has to be done in or near the organism's body. Look at spider silk, you know, it, it can't afford that. So I thought, this is interesting. You know, there's this whole set of technologies honed over 3.8 billion years. Surely there must be a discipline well, career path for the people who make our world, you know, probably sit down with biologists. For instance, the people who have solar make solar cells probably sat down with a botanist. And I was shocked to find that wasn't true. And so I started to look for it. And this was back in 1990. I started to collect. And uh, anytime I found a scientific paper 
where there was a botanist talking to a solar cell manufacturer, I collected it. And one day I walked past four drawers of a Hun filing cabinet filled with Xerox papers. And I said, this is crazy. This field has no name. Wow. This is nature-inspired inspiration at that point had no name. So I decided to write a book and uh, I had to, well, I had to name the first folder something actually is where biomimicry came from. And I looked in the dictionary and bio means life and mimesis means to imitate. And so I named it, I wrote that on, I wrote biomimicry on the tab. And uh, then the book came out and I went to start writing my next book. And the phone started ringing off the hook and it was Nike and Interface and Herman Miller and Seventh Generation and Patagonia and GE and Boeing and all of these companies saying, we invent every day and we need a biologist at our design table and could you send one over? They assumed I had a company. A team, a giant team of people. <laughs> and I was sitting there, you know, in my pajamas writing and <laughs> I finally got the memo and said, history's calling here. We need a we need to start a company. And at that time, a PhD candidate at the University of Montana, where I live, named Dana Baumeister called me. She said, I read your book. I shook for three days. This is what I want to do for my career. And I said, do what? And she came down and we talked for about 14 hours in my house. And we basically said, we need to start up. We need to start training biologists, and we need to start going to these companies. This is our opportunity to help create more sustainable products. And as biologists, there's nothing better we could do in the world. Ah, what a cool interdisciplinary entrepreneurial story. I love that. That was 20 years that. ago. Wow. And Dana and I are still rocking in the free world and doing it. Yep. So tell us what that process of consulting for a client looks like for you. How do you, and, and, and really when you are working as a consultant, how do you know when you have achieved success? Oh, that's a really good question. Wow, Megan. Yeah, so what we do is say North Face comes to us and says, we want to do water repellency on our tents, but we don't want to use Teflon anymore. It's too toxic. And we say, well, yeah, life knows how to repel water. You know, water runs off ducks' backs for sure. a reason. And so we do a project called an amoeba through zebra. And all we're doing is searching through the biological literature, which is voluminous, of course, it's not all we're, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> and we are reading all these papers and some, few of them are labeled water repellency in the natural world. There, there's a paragraph or two that mentions water repellency. And if we get lucky, they tell us how it's done. We call it amoeba through zebra because we look at all classes of organisms. We find a better sample size that way. We look at bacteria and fungi and plants and animals, and we just keep asking that functional question which is not how biology is organized, but we do find a catalog of mechanisms and none of them are Teflon. We then present that. We basically create a, a taxonomy, we call it. We gather them together and we present, say, 25 mechanisms to the client. And they say, well, let's try that one. You know, here's a shape one. Here's a, like the lotus effect, right? Here's a chemical one. And um, then we work with the inventor or the, the engineer or the material scientist or the product designer to try to put that into the tent. Now, you asked, how do we know when we've succeeded? So for us to do deep biomimicry, we not only want to borrow the form from the natural world, but we also want to 
influence the way it's made, the chemistry, the process. So we keep on trying to layer more and more biomimicry in. So we say, how are you going to make it? What are you going to make it out of? How are you going to grow what you're going to make it out of? How are you going to package it? How are you going to ship it? And can we ask nature at every step along the way? And we use what's called life's principles as a checklist. It's on our website, biomimicry.net. Life's principles are a list of things that we found as biologists that most organisms have in common. And they turn out to be a very, very good eco-checklist. There are things like life does chemistry in water instead of toxic solvents. Or um, life uses a small subset of the periodic table that are life-friendly. Those sorts of, we think of them as operating instructions, we try to bring to the client. And as many as, as the client will adopt, it becomes more and more sustainable and for us more and more biomimetic. Wow. I was, uh, my husband and I actually were watching some of your TED Talks yesterday, and and, uh, it inspired a long conversation, which is really cool. Uh, And Mm. one of the things that that we were wondering was, um, you know, we were talking about all of the sort of new things that biomimicry can do to help us move forward. How can biomimicry help us undo some of Mm. the harm that we've done to our environmental, but but also maybe our social environments? Mm. Interesting. A lot of, there's a lot of things that come to mind. The biggest issue facing us now, most existential, of course, is climate change. And biomimicry can help in many ways. You know, there's two things we have to do. Stop emitting greenhouse gases Mm -hmm. and then pull down legacy carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And biomimicry helps on both of those sides of the ledger. I'll just give you one cool example because it was student-originated at Caltech, uh, John DeBerry's lab, when, when he was at Caltech. Um, they were looking for a way to help wind farms be able to move into cities and into you know not take up as much land. Mm-hmm. One of the things that wind farms do with the horizontal axis wind turbines is they, they have to put them far apart because there's turbulence that happens from the wing, from the blade. And they were studying fish schooling and found that in a school of fish, the fish in the front, basically, as they swim, they throw off a little vortice in the water, a little spiral. And the fish behind will curl their bodies around like a sail and get flung upstream. So they said, why don't we use vertical axis wind turbines, kind that are like little cylinders, and we'll put them in a tight school formation. And sure enough, five times more wind power, which is good for the environment. Wow. The turbines in the front start to move, and those vortices start to turn the ones in the back before the wind even hits. So that is a really good example of sort of on the not emitting, let's move to wind and let's do it in a way that doesn't use as much land. On the other side, pulling down carbon, that's where you get into agriculture. Because I think, you know, one of the things we're going to have to do is figure out how to biosequester. That is, pull carbon dioxide deep into soils so that it gets far enough down in the root column that it's trapped there for hundreds or thousands of years. And some of the best ways to do that are biomimetic agriculture. So rotational grazing, for instance, which is based on how 
you basically take cows and you put them into groups that are similar to how buffalo would graze. When they had predators, they would hang out in herds and then move. And so they rotationally would graze the grass. The grass evolved this way and it sequesters a lot more carbon. It just gets more and more flushes of photosynthesis. So rotational grazing is one way. Agroforestry, where you have trees in amongst the crops, that allows a lot more carbon sequestration. So I think we're going to get to the point where we're, we're going to start to ask, you know, do, do our farmlands sequester as much carbon as the forest next door? And how can we make that happen? Because we're going to have to pull that carbon dioxide down, bring carbon home. And a lot of those are biomimetic agriculture approaches. In my book, West Jackson in Kansas still has that project of uh, perennial polycultures, which are mixtures of crops grown in the same uh, field, but overwintering, and so that they're covering the, the ground. They sink a lot of carbon. We're just at the beginning of looking to the natural world for climate change solutions. You have talked in your um, in your biomimicry book, um, you were saying that when you look at a natural space that you can use, you just mentioned, you know, does this space that we're working in now, is it as effective in, um, you know, whether it's pulling in carbon or, or whatever your, your areas of measurement are as the space that we're working in? So mm-hmm. can you dig into that measurement piece a little bit mm. so you can... Uh, just explain a little bit more about how, again, you can tell, you know, how effective you're being or, or where the areas of success lie. Yeah, good question. Um, because a lot of what we've talked about so far is nature as model, um, trying to emulate something in the in the product space. But I think nature as measure is going to be very impactful going forward. I'm here at, at, on campus to talk about an initiative called Campus as a Forest. We're actually encouraging uh, campuses and corporate campuses and all, all kinds of, and cities for that matter, to try to emulate the wildland next door to be truly biomimetic. What does that mean? Well, what if we measured ourselves against a, a healthy ecosystem? What would be growing there in our city or our campus if we weren't there? Here it would be the beautiful forests of the, of the Blue Ridge Mountains. And we know that those systems provide us with free services. That's part of the, why we know they're healthy. They clean air, and they clean a certain amount of air each year. You can measure that. They clean a certain amount of water each year per acre. You can measure that. They build a certain amount of soil. They cycle a certain amount of nutrients. They cool the air to a certain temperature. These are all things you can measure. So we've been using this something called ecological performance standards. So we basically say you're, you know, you're, you're going to build some new buildings, the innovation campus that you're building. Before you even build, you basically say, those are our metrics. We're going to go to a reference habitat here and find out all the ecosystem services and what the metrics are, and that becomes our ecological performance standard. We go in before the building and we baseline it. That's your current performance. And if it's a bulldozed parking lot, you know that it's not cooling or storing water or, right? So you start pretty low, but then you start to layer in design interventions. Maybe you put in a bioswale. Maybe you put in permeable pavement, 
so that you can sink water. Maybe you put on a green roof so that you can start to store carbon. Maybe you, even your buildings get involved because say you wanna do carbon storage in your building, maybe you build with timbers or you build with concrete that sequesters CO2. There's a company called Calera and Blue Planet that sells CO2 sequestering concrete. Um, it gives you this reason to try to have multi-functional surfaces. Say in your building, you actually encourage birds to nest in niches in the building. You're supporting biodiversity. Up on the green roof, you have hives because you're supporting pollinators. You know, So it's a really interesting way for our systems to become more and more generous. We call them generous cities. Um, more and more generous over time, as generous as the ecosystem next door. And the first corporation to do this is Interface Carpet. We're doing it with each of their headquarters. We call it Factory is a Forest. So the factory and its site, can it clean water? Can it clean air? Can it cool? Can it support biodiversity? And it's going to take years to have this happen. And we're thinking, what a cool thing to have the campus here at App State do the same thing set metrics for themselves, and then year after year, student design ideas get implemented. And then you measure whether or not you're getting more like the forest next door, right? Hopefully. Yeah. And yeah. you see, it's it's a move, you know, in sustainability, we've been like charging towards net zero, which is not a very, you know, inspiring thing. You get to zero, <laughs> meaning zero harm. And well, it's especially on a college campus, nobody it's, wants a zero, Nobody right? wants a zero, right? <laughs> and it's hard to do. I mean, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. You know, we need to do no harm. Once we get to that level, um, where we're meeting our own needs, I think it's time to go positive, right? And it's time to actually give back, because as a biologist, I know that forests don't just go to zero, meet their own needs, and then never release clean water downstream, right, or never right. release clean air to the next watershed. They do, and. We have to get to that point, and that's true biomimicry when we're functioning like that, when we're that kind of a good neighbor. Design for Ecosystem Services is an exciting thing to contemplate. What would our buildings look like if we were inviting wildlife in? What would they look like if they were made out of substances, concrete that gobbles up organic pollutants? There's photocatalytic concrete. And how many positive things can we have them do? Well, and I love that measurement concept because, especially on a college campus, you have transient populations. So you get really excited students that design really amazing things, and it's always the legacy piece that is difficult because yeah. you want to show here's something to build on, and when you can continue to look at the data and say, okay, this is where we are now. How are we going to get better? How do we get better? Yeah, it's really exciting. How do we get better? Like we, okay, we're only sequestering this much carbon in our soils. Well we got to give up pesticides because it's the microbes that, you know, they really help the microbes in the soil, really, the bacteria and fungi and all. They really help sequester the carbon. So we're going to have to do no pesticides. You may already do that here because you're so sustainability savvy. But it really does change. It's, it it not, doesn't just change the form of the campus. It actually changes policies. And then, of course, if you have students who, who live in that environment and, and who are always looking for why Why is this parking lot just a parking lot? Right. You know, yeah, they're always yeah. looking for the next thing. I think that is a change that 
I don't think you go back. I think that's one of those ratchet chains sure. in your mind, right? You don't go backwards from that way of thinking, that abundance way of thinking. Well, yeah, and it also, I think, allows you to celebrate those smaller steps because, I mean, I get really impatient with wanting things to be better more quickly. Yeah. And I have to talk myself a lot about just look where I was even three years ago or two years yeah. ago with whatever it might be, whether it's personal or, you know, something going on. You know, I'm, I live in a farmhouse that was built in the 30s and it's a never ending project. And yeah. so, you know, yeah, those little things. But I think that's part of human nature is to want to see success, but also maybe not want to change too quickly. And mm-hmm. so this seems to me like it meets both of those needs in terms mm. of showing that there is progress being made, but also not imposing some massive immediate change that requires a lot of people to, you know, really have to adjust to mm-hmm. in, in a major way. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. So, I would love that. Massive well, sure. Change. But, but, I, but I, I think you're right. I mean, it's a couple of things, just psychologically, we're, we're overly aware of the damage we've done especially if you're in school you are you know you you need trauma counseling just from taking an environmental studies class and to be able to participate in the positive side in our species turning the corner we're going to need a lot of energy in in the next couple of decades to do this kind of work and we need things that are energizing right so yes small wins and the best way to have small wins mean something is to have them accumulate toward a goal that makes sense yeah. and that's achievable. It makes sense to be able to clean a certain amount of water each year because you know it's happening right next door. You can't dispute that. Right. And then it just becomes a design question, like how do we clean this much water off of our site? Right? Like it and I think, you know, humans are we're pretty creative. We got these big brains and if we put them to that and then we keep counting it up and cel- I, celebrating. I yeah. mean, this is, I'm not a psychologist, but it just seems to me that, that that gets you refreshed for the next project. Yeah, and I think, you know, the other thing too that occurred to me while you were talking is that I think we also, in some cases, just as a society, maybe this is just an American thing, I don't know, but we have this tendency to say, okay, that doesn't work, so we can't do any of it, instead of finding that piece that might be working. And so when you're measuring on many different levels, you can say that it might not be working well with level A, but on level, you know, whatever, L, it's outperforming, you know, everything else that's going out there. So, So how can we hone in on that? And instead of getting rid of the entire concept because it's not working everywhere. That's Let's right. look at those different places. Voltaire, the don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, it's a stair step, but a stair step to where? I think it's really important to set a goal and to, and to say, how are we going to know when we're there? And for me, it needs to be local, locally informed, because Vermont is not Phoenix. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the metrics have to be local. It really does help to be able to walk outside and get ideas <laughs> from the local, right? And then have that be a goal, as aspirational as it is. It's a goal that makes sense and that's not sort of, well, it's not that much up for debate. Like it's happening over there. That's not a debate anymore. So therefore, the only question is how do we start to get there? Right, right. So what are some of the really big questions that we need to be considering right now, whether, you know, in academia or business or government, what are those, you know, huge things that you see? (sighs) Oh, the same same you probably see. I mean, um, 
right now, the biggest thing in our face is climate change and democracy. How do we remain in the climate that we evolved in, the Holocene? How do we bring this planet back to a, a life-friendly zone, uh, the zone we evolved in? That is enormously in front of me as a biologist. Mm -hmm. Democracy is a how, and good people you know, who have a good way to organize themselves from the grassroots up can do good things. And so we, we're going to need, in these next few years, a very strong way to hear from everyone and then to figure out how to make consensus, or maybe not consensus decisions, but at least hear from everyone and collaborate. You asked earlier about social innovation. And is there anything we're learning from the natural world? on that front. It, it's really interesting. Every few years in the last 20 years, a new group of people who are trying to redesign something will come to us. You know, all of a sudden all the engineers came and then all the architects came and all. Well, now social innovation people are coming and they're saying, what can we learn from the natural world about how we organize ourselves? And I do think this ties into democracy. And we've been doing a lot of study, again, same technique in the biological literature around mutualisms, which are mutually beneficial relationships that organisms get into that are in two different species, like a flower and a bee. One pollinates, one gets nectar, right? It's mutually beneficial. Or a fungus gives a tree phosphorus, and the tree can't get phosphorus on its own, so it gives it carbon, and there's an exchange there, and it's mutualism. And it turns out that mutualisms are extremely important in how this world is run. Complex ecosystems are full of deeply embedded mutualistic networks, mm -hmm. not yeah. just competition. We're in an economic system that's based basically on head-to-head -head competition, and yet when you look to the natural world, head-to-head -head competition is what organisms want to get out of. Mm -hmm. They would rather either just coexist, two different species, um, two different species of shorebirds, say, go, go up to an island they've never lived before. They both happen to be clam eaters. Well, in not too long, they're going to learn to, I'll take the daylight, you take the night. We're not going to, we don't want to do head-to-head -head competition. Right, Organisms right. want to move to either coexisting and not bothering each other, taking different time shifts, or they evolve to be mutualists, to help each other in the hunt. Um, and so we've been looking a lot at that. Um, and so as as esoteric as it sounds, it I don't think it is to say that one of the big things that we need to do is to believe that mutualistic, cooperative, collaborative relationships is our true nature. Mm. And to get ourselves through this evolutionary knothole that we're racing towards, I think we're going to have to, back to democracy, we're going to have to um, do the kind of democracy that um, involves a lot of working things out mm -hmm. so that it's mutually beneficial. It's win, 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 win. And we have to figure out how to do that. So we literally have been talking to companies that are merging, for instance, and we're saying, what are best practices in the natural world around signaling that you want a partnership? How do organisms start a partnership? 
How do they maintain a partnership over long periods of time without cheating? Mm. How do they maintain Hmm. it? And there are best practices, just like everything else over 3.8 billion years, in the same way as fish have a great drag reduction strategy, partners have a great partnership fidelity, reciprocity rules, all kinds of things. Um, and I think, I think as, as much as you know, we've got enormous technical challenges, we also have these social innovation challenges. For sure. And when you say that, over 3.8 billion years, you start thinking, yeah, well, there's a lot of knowledge there that we can draw from. So, yeah. Yeah the, yeah. the failures are fossils. <laughs> Um, this is a similar question, but, uh, you know, for, for young people today, what do you think their biggest challenge is? Hmm. I would say, you know, one of it, one of them might be navigating despair. Wow. Um, and... And that again, they're going to find solace in in each other. I look and I see how how incredibly tribal and tight folks are, and and um, I mean tribe, not tribes against one another, but right. they just tend to be. There's lots of ways to connect, and they are keeping their spirits up. Yeah. Right. And the antidote to despair is remembering that we live on a competent planet and we are surrounded by elders <laughs> that have figured out how to live here elegantly and gracefully in a way that enhances this place so it's possible. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges is going to be navigating that despair and continuing to move towards the light. <laughs> right? Uh, Don't spend too much time in the shadows of the problem space. We need every young person we can to jump into the solution space and start messing around in the sandbox with us and figuring it out, right? And remember to look over your shoulder at the forest that surrounds you for the answers. That's another antidote to despair. That's what I would say. Just get busy on the solution space. Looking at your talks on TED and and reading some of your work and listening to you today, you make me really hopeful for our future. Are Mm. you hopeful? Optimism is a choice. And I choose, you know, who was Dehawk who started Visa? Chaotic guy. Um, That was his process. He called it chaotic. Um, He said, uh, it's far too late and things are far too bad for pessimism. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and that's literally how I feel. I feel like once you've done your work of understanding the issues that face us, those are the what James Heldman would call the shadows. There's gold in the shadows. Yes, go and learn those. And then choose to be optimistic that we're going to get through this. Focus on the brilliance around us, the brilliance within us. The brilliance within you and within your mutualism cohort, right? Yeah, I. Um, it's not that I don't think it's going to get crazy. Like I said, in the next couple of decades, it is. Um, there's a lot of grief for me as a biologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, we live with that grief. But I do think that we're going to get through the knot hole. And 
I think we're going to bloom on the other side. And we're, we're going to be living here in a way that fits where we are. Right? It's going to emulate the best of the best, because I think that's what's going to help us get through. The best of the best organisms that are here on this planet are going to be our teachers. They're going to be guiding us through that evolutionary knothole. And yeah, I do think we're going to get through. I have to. I've been doing this for 20 years, and I'm going to be doing it for another 20. <laughs> I can't wait to see how it turns out. Well, Janine Benyus, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to join us in the studio today. Um, you know, your passion and enthusiasm is infectious, you know, and, and, and I love that it's mixed with pragmatism because that's really what speaks to me personally. I think it, it speaks to uh, to a lot of people who do, you know, work in, in academia and, and beyond. So I'm so glad you stopped by to record this conversation with us. And, and um, I'm glad that you're here on our campus sharing and engaging in, in really, really important conversations because I think we have a, a lot of growing to do and we will be doing a lot of growing mm. as a campus in the next five to ten years. And, um, and how we do that, we're sitting at a really important precipice right now. So to have you here hmm. facilitating conversations at that precipice hmm. is, uh, is a treat. And yeah. it's an honor for us to have you. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Megan. I love to be here. I'll come back. Great. Yeah. We'll take you. <laughs> Thanks. Today's show was written and produced by Troy Tuttle, Dave Blanks, and me, Megan Hayes. Our sound engineer is Dave Blanks with assistance from Wes Craig. Our web team is Pete Montaldi, Alex Waterworth, and Derek Wyckoff. Research assistance comes from Elizabeth Wall, and video and photo support come from Garrett Ford and Marie Freeman. Our theme song was written and performed by Derek Wyckoff of Naked Gods. Our podcast studio is dedicated to Greg Cuddy. Special thanks to Stephen Dubner for the inspiration, advice, and moral support. Sound Effect is a production of the University Communications Team at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. For Sound Effect, I'm Megan Hayes.